Okay, um, we are on page 52, um, but of course then too, uh, we can uh, tie up or if there are any questions or further inquiry uh, on the last chapter that we read, um, the, the section we're gonna look at today is the story of Jesus is stolen from older mystery religions. But last week we discussed the accusation that Christianity teaches bigotry. Uh, what was the, def the dictionary definition of bigotry that we had? Do you remember? He spent quite a bit of time on it. Anybody remember bigotry? Okay, uh, let's get more than just one word. Very good. Man, that sounds just like, oh, okay, you're right. I, you know, I was like, well, Stephanie, she just knows this stuff. So I, w I didn't doubt that you spoke it word for word, but then I saw the book. And uh, uh, no, yes, yeah, so a, uh, a stubborn, if we might use that word, intolerance of one's own uh, opinion and not considering input or the opinion from outside sources. Um, you know, Christians get accused of being bigots, but even on its face and at a very foundational level that is incorrect because we confess and believe um, not our own opinion, we even believe things contrary, right, to what we might call logic, okay? Um, this is where we talk about, you know, in what, what role does logic play in your confession, in your religion? Uh, even within Christianity, you may have some who say, well, our logic or our opinion of what logic is, is that it rises above the Bible, right? Some examples of that would be people who say, well, we, th at the sacrament of the altar, it can't be the body and blood of Jesus because that's not logical, right? G it, Jesus is, is man. He can't be in two places at once. They'll say he's up at the right hand of God, if, and so he can't be at the altar as well. His flesh and blood is in heaven, so his flesh and blood cannot be here. Um, that is what, you know, we would say we put logic ahead, uh, where we use our opinion, right? And we don't want to consider any outside source. We Christians, we believe things contrary to what, how we live our lives every day in logic. Um, that we believe Jesus can be present in the sacrament. Uh, and, and this is a thing we rejoice in. Um, so bigotry is the closing off of anything outside of our opinion or what we want to hear. Um, any, any thoughts or any other ideas? Did you have any thoughts about that during the last week or any, anything to add to the discussion? Yeah, 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 um, it is, yeah, it's curious when they say we wouldn't be welcome in your church. Well, have you asked us? <laughs> have you, have you come? Yeah. Have you tried? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, good. Okay, um, well, then we can move on. 
Um, he, uh, in closing, he did turn the accusation of bigotry against the church. He turns it and says, no, actually, if those who are accusing the church of bigotry are themselves um, uh, showing characteristics of bigotry and maybe even bigots themselves because they don't want to hear the opinion of anyone else, including God, right? And I even see, it even seems silly to call it God's opinion. Um, but uh, it, the truth, we would say. Um, okay, so on page 52, the story of Jesus is stolen from older mystery religions. Uh, this is uh, written by Dr. Adam Francisco, who's up at Concordia, Chicago, I do believe now. Um, he, uh, he's come in our area a couple of times, generally. Um, he'll teach on things like uh, Luther, uh, on Islam, uh, Luther and the Quran, uh, and apologetics. Um, so uh, Dr. Francisco is a, 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 a well-known name and, and well-traveled. Okay, so here are, here are the objections. Small, ancient, and secretive religious sects are sometimes identified as the source of Christian beliefs. Similarities between Christianity and these mystery religions, especially the cult of Mithras, are misrepresented and overstated. Scripture's testimony about Jesus comes from eyewitnesses to his life who reported their experiences and did not draw on previously existing myths. So this is going to, we're going to hear, um, does the Bible teach us um, or mention anything about older religions, older mysterious religions? When I say older religions, I mean before the birth of Jesus, because we would contend that Christianity, of course, is the oldest religion uh, from, from the Garden of Eden, even. Okay, let's get... That's okay. It's quite all right. can't remember what that... Is that ESPN or what was that? Is, is it? It is okay. Good. I'm glad I'm not too out of touch with society. Okay. Uh, a wide variety of long-standing religions existed across the Near East during the first century, from Judaism to Zoroastr Thank you, Zoroastrianism, and of course Greco-Roman polytheism. Okay. Does anybody know about Zoroastrianism? Yes. Yeah, you do. Give us a little lesson on that. Um, I, I try to look into it because my favorite conductor is actually a Zoro. Really? Yeah. yeah. A follower of Zorro. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. Zubin Mehta, who conducted the three centers. And okay. Uh, he is, uh, and they call him Parsi now or something like that. I okay. But um, there's only like, five, at least back then, like 20 years ago, 500,000 followers mm -hmm. worldwide around there. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, it was some kind of, it was very confusing, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And it's like good in like this, the spirits. He, when he would talk, he would talk about the spirits. Instead of talking about God, I noticed that. And it's like good and evil, like this battle yeah. between good and evil. Yep. And um, I didn't, like I said, I tried to, to look it up and, and, and it was very confusing. Yeah, yeah, there's a, a lot of strange things about it. Anybody else know anything in a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, it is, it does really avoid sort of flesh and blood re realities. And um, it is, uh, I think they say the, uh, maybe as early as 6th century uh, BC, it, it, it's, it, it begins in the region of Iran uh, and it, 
it's basically a, a, a discussion of a battle between good and evil. And the good spirit is the one who's created all things. And I think they, it's kind of silly. The three tenets they have, I think, are like good morals, um, good living, and um, it, it's like three good things that you focus on. So it is a works-based religion where you are rewarded, of course, according to how good you were. And that, you know, to remember of, uh, and it was begun by Zoroaster. Um, not Zorro, as much as I like to think that, um, that it is a religion of works. You be a good person, you know, you see it on bumper stickers, right? Good vibes, welcome here, right? It's, it's that taken to the extreme. Um, um, flesh and blood, right, is, is kind of like, it, it kind of touches on Gnosticism a little bit like that, that flesh and blood is kind of something to be avoided. Your bodies is one of the, the causes of all the sin and, and rebellion against the good spirit. Um, uh, Mazda, I think, is, 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 his, is his name. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a Middle Eastern religion that's all based on good works that they claim has uh, some long ancestral roots, okay? Um, so that's why he includes it there with uh, religions of the Near East, Zoroastrianism. Um, okay. There were also many small and secretive sects throughout the region. They're often called mystery religions. Little is known about them because members were sworn to secrecy. The historical evidence that exists, however, tells us that they each had, a dis had distinct ceremonies and sanctuaries dedicated to a particular regional god. There was a cult of Tammuz in Mesopotamia, Iraq, Attis in Anatolia, which is Turkey, Adonis in Syria, Demeter in Bacchus in Greece, and the list goes on. Scholars once assumed that while each of these small religions was unique, they also shared a core set of beliefs. Many seemed to parallel the story of Jesus. They included myths about a dying and rising God, some sort of atoning sacrifice, and more. This idea was made popular over a century ago in Sir James Fraser's multi-volume book entitled The Golden Bow, or The Golden Bow. Um, so I, I think the picture there is that there's like this golden thread that you can find throughout all religions. And it, you hear people say this, it all points to what? The same God. And this God is defined, how do, you, how do people really, if, there, if we were to say there's a golden bough, right? You think of boughs of holly. If there's a golden string throughout all religions that you can find, what do people say it is? Do you, have you thought about that? What is something that almost all religions, according to Mr. Fraser, have in common? A loving God. Uh, yeah, a, a God who's good, right? And that, that there is good. Um, the definition of good might be different, but that there is some sort of supreme being who's a nice guy, right? He just wants everybody to what? get along, love each other, be happy. And so um, I haven't read this book, of course, or this multi-volume book, uh, Frasier, The Golden Bow. Um, but you know, you, it's alive and well, right? You hear it everywhere. Like I said, you see it on bumper stickers. Um, 
this idea of a good, some sort of good old man or whatever in the sky who doesn't really, who doesn't really hurt you. He's kind of impotent actually, but he just kind of approves if your motives are good. And he rewards you, right, if you're good. Um, it surveyed this, this volume, this multi-volume book, surveyed a plethora of ancient religious myths and included Christianity in their midst. The Golden Bough influenced a generation of scholars. They developed the claim that much of the story of Jesus, especially his death for sin and resurrection for justification, was merely copied. The sources were the texts and rituals of these earlier mystery religions. The authors of the New Testament flatly deny this, of course. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, declares 2 Peter 1.16. Indeed, the gospels were written by eyewitnesses to the life and teachings of Jesus and their companions. Their accounts are filled with details that can be verified by historical and archaeological evidence, and many have been. This is quite different than the stories of the mystery religions. None of them even claim to be based on real events. Most of them are simply mythological interpretations of the vegetation cycle of crops emerging from their dormant state after winter. As it turns out, the argument of Fraser's The Golden Bough and other works like it have been shown to be contrived interpretations of weak evidence. So, you know, this is a curious thing to consider and think about. To think that instead of um, all religions having the same God, but that all religions take bits and pieces of the one true religion and then make up things to their own desire. This is, Dr. Francisco, he is, he's mentioned this before in his lectures on Islam, that that's what a lot of scholars think Islam was. It was more like a sect of Christianity than wanting to start a whole new religion. That Muhammad, in his travels, he picked up many parts of Christianity and the stories of the Old Testament as he traveled and went around and then just cobbled them all together in something of his own religious writings and doctrines and his, his take on the teachings of the Old Testament because the Quran has a lot of the Old Testament in it. Now, there are different parts of it. And I've, I've thought about this and... and I heard one pastor sort of talk about, you know, the basic fundamentals of Christianity from the Old Testament and how you see them rise up in different parts of society and different parts of the world. Like child sacrifice. This is something we see in many religions, don't we? And in my mind, I was often conflicted and thought, who in the world thought it was a good idea to sacrifice their children to a god? You are cutting off, your, you are destroying your own population. And I thought, 
where does this idea come from? I mean, it's, it's too common in other religions, right? Because we have them in the, the Mayans, the Inca religions in South America, Central America. We have them in North America now, right? Child sacrifices and, and abortion and, and the religious fervor of our day in our land. Why in the world? And I heard a pastor one time say, well, don't you think perhaps maybe it's a perverted version of the gospel? Of the promise in Genesis? Your offspring will crush the head of, his, of the devil, but yet the devil will what? Bruise his heel. And then we also have the teaching of Abraham, right? When God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so it kind of made sense to me, and I'd never heard that before. Maybe, maybe it's something you've just kind of always known, but I thought, man, that's interesting that all these child sacrifices are perverted versions of the gospel. It's the devil saying, you're appeasing the wrath of God is up to you to do something, to give your most treasured possession. And it's perverted, right? Because it's not we who give up. It's not we who can even the score with God, right? But it is God who gives up his most treasured possession. So in a, in a way, it's like, yeah, everybody sort of heard this notion or this doctrine, this teaching of the sacrifice of a child and that that would appease the wrath of God, but they perverted it. And that's why we see it in all these religions. It's kind of like most world religions. What other, what other common stories to the Bible do we hear in other religions? Flood. Yeah, a worldwide flood or a large flood of some sort is in many non-Christian religions. Right? Kind of maybe another testimony to a common, common story from the beginning. It's quite interesting. Um, so then it kind of makes sense that the devil is behind, you know, all the, the murder of innocents, uh, children in particular. Uh, and that's, a, that's something that, that, that's pretty sad. But of course, the devil doesn't care. Uh, he, he's the, what does Jesus say? He's, he was a murderer from the beginning, right? And, and still is. Pastor, yeah. Um, yeah, it's because the devil has convinced them, just like he convinced Adam and Eve. You know, God told them they would die, and Adam and Eve, I mean, we can ask the question about why did, did I do this sin? You know, you can ask yourself, why did I sin? Why did I do this, right? right. And That's it's, kind of an <laughs> yeah, but you know, that, that is how serious an evil sin is, you know, in the devil, and how tricky and how, how evil he is, right? In temptation and, and, and things like that. Well, it's, it's just sad that it's just really not that uncommon, even in modern times. There are a lot of cultures where it's okay. Even in China, if you have a, in modern times, if you have a daughter, they often will 
and then they'll mm-hmm. go someplace. Mm-hmm. Read the history of a lot of cultures, they'll leave kids out in the woods or yeah, exposure. Kids who yeah. have uh, disabilities or any issues or whatever, and it's just accepted, which is really yeah. creepy. But yeah, and the devil, the devil loves, he loves murder. The devil loves, he loves, yeah, yeah, it's, it's something that is, that is very dangerous, and, you know, it's, it's the devil, he, he has, this is the devil's playground where we, where we live, the world, um, and the beautiful thing is, you know, with, with uh, God sending his son uh, to die for us, you know, absolutely, even, this, even these mothers, fathers, abortion doctors, um, you know, Jesus died for those sins. They are, they are forgiven. You know, the murders and all that, Jesus died for all sin. And as, as difficult and, and as ugly as it gets, um, we know that God's mercy and forgiveness is, is even greater and even more beautiful. So it's the devil hates beauty. He likes to make things as ugly as possible. And you know, our sinful flesh is a willing accomplice. Um, so um, here we, we begin to see this discussion and people trying to say, oh, you know, there's some, there's some commonality between Christianity and some of these weird religions. And they tried to say that shows that Christianity copied them. When just like in the last chapter, when they accuse us of being bigots, usually it's because they're showing their bigotry. So here we see that maybe Christianity is the common theme that everything takes from and perverts it. Okay. Um, And he goes and says, the Bible itself speaks against this. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Okay. Um, Middle, uh, second, or uh, yeah, second full paragraph, top of page 53. This is quite different than the stories of the mystery religions. None of them even claim to be based on real events. We've already read this, but I'll keep going. Most of them are simply mythological interpretations of the vegetation cycle of crops emerging from their dormant state after winter. As it turns out, the argument of Frazier's The Golden Bough and other works like it have been shown to be contrived interpretations of weak evidence. There is one notable exception, the cult of Mithras. For those who maintain that the story of Jesus was plagiarized, it is, most, it is the most cited example. Mithras was a Persian, Iranian god, who was said to be born of a virgin in something like a cave on December 25th. He allegedly had 12 disciples to whom he promised eternal life. He sacrificed himself for some greater good, was buried in a tomb, and rose again after three days. Mithraism of some form predates Christianity by over a thousand years. It held sway in Persia for most of its history. Eventually, it made its way west into the Roman Empire. By the second century, it had risen in prominence and existed side by side with Christianity. It should come as no surprise then that it has attracted the attention of Christianity's critics. Its parallels to the story of Jesus are uncanny. What is surprising, though, is just how weak this allegedly strong example of Christianity's plagiarism really is. First, while Mithraism is ancient, there's no evidence that it was present anywhere near the New Testament authors until after the New Testament was written. As far as the similarities between the life of Jesus and the story of Mithras are concerned, any evidence comes from Mithraic text dating to the 2nd century A.D., There are no stories of Mithraism that existed alongside or centuries before 
the first generation of Christians. The leading scholar on Mithraism and Christianity is Edwin Yamauchi. He argues that the similarities between the two religions are best explained by Mithraism being influenced by Christianity. Most significant, however, is that the alleged similarities listed above aren't really found in the Mithraic texts. They are common but erroneous interpretations of them. The texts say Mithras was born from a rock, not a virgin. For whatever reason, the rock is sometimes viewed as a metaphor for a virgin. There's no mention of Mithras being born in a cave either. Mithraic sanctuaries were built to look like caves, and Christians have historically wondered whether Jesus was born in one since animals, and thus mangers, were often kept in them. But neither the Gospels nor the stories of Mithras say anything about Jesus or the Persian god being born in a cave. It's interesting, too, to see the role that caves play in Christianity and other religions. In fact, in Islam, uh, Muhammad, in his famous ride up to the various levels of heaven where God introduced him to the prophets and told him that Muhammad was going to be giving this message, a new revelation of, of God to, to people. Muhammad is said, he claims to have been sleeping in a cave when this happened. Caves sort of have a mysterious mystique to them. You also have in philosophy, right? You have Plato, right? And Plato's caves. Caves have sort of this mysterious mystique to them. And uh, even in Christianity, there are some who say Jesus was born in one. Um, it was a, a, a famous Christian tradition. Uh, so it would make sense, even Mithras, uh, an ancient religion, talks about that. Um, so it's quite, quite curious. What, what caves are there in the Bible? Do you remember any? Any specific stories? There was one prophet, right? who was put, maybe even a, yeah, in the cave, but he says in the cleft, over, Moses was put in a cleft, right? And then you have prophet uh, Elisha um, in the cave as, as God passed by. And, um, you know, he wasn't in all these big, strong things, but he was in the whisper, in his word, um, what God showed him. Um, any other caves in the Bible, in the scriptures? Oh, yeah, right. What, what happened with that? In a cave, wasn't he? Yeah. That's right. I'd, for, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. David and Saul and a couple other instances. So, so caves, it's not uncommon to hear about them in, in the scripture or in various religions. Uh, and here we have uh, Mithras um, maybe being, being born in a cave. Uh, the whole virgin and rock thing, I don't know if that has to do with uh, Aramaic uh, or the... Or, um, the um, text there, but, um, you know, they, they try to translate the word rock as, as a virgin, but uh, of course here, um, according to Yamauchi, uh, this, is not, this is not true. This is not a good way to, to translate that. Okay. Uh, there is also nothing in the New Testament stories of Jesus' life that claim he was born on December 25th. It is in the Mithraic tradition 
Researchers believed it was adopted from the Roman cult of Sol Invictus. Mithras and Sol Invictus were often depicted together in pagan art. Christians originally placed Jesus' birth on January 6th. Some still do. It wasn't until the early 4th century that the Roman Emperor Constantine changed it to December 25th. And there are other discussions on that, that that go beyond the pale of our discussion today. But perhaps he did this to disenfranchise Sol Invictus, the pagan deity he used to worship before his conversion to Christianity. Additionally, Mithras is never referred to as a teacher with 12 disciples in Mithraic texts. There were followers of Mithras, just like there are followers of every religion, but nowhere is he viewed as an itinerant teacher who lived in real time and space with a distinct group of immediate followers. Mithras does implicitly offer immortality to those who worship him. What religion doesn't? What he does not offer, though, is salvation through the forgiveness of sins and justification of the sinner before God the Father. There is also no evidence of Mithraic teaching that Mithras sacrificed himself, was buried in a tomb, or rose from the dead. So most of the time when people make these accusations and say this, it's not actually based on anything. It's just what they hope, um, what they hope is true. How many religions, I think we've talked about this, right? How many religions are there in the world? What do you think? You had to guess. There's only two. <laughs> right? You people think I'm so tough. I'm really a I'm really a nice nice guy. I'm really I'm really nice. Um, there's two religions, right? How would how would we state that? Two religions in the world, ultimately. There's the truth and false. Okay, yeah, that's good. That's nice. But let's get down onto a doctrine level. If I claim there are only two religions in the world, works of law, right? And works are a religion of works where it's up to you to somehow cover some sort of sin or distance between you and whatever the, the God is. And then there is Christianity, which is a, the only religion that claims you are saved by the works of somebody else, God himself. And he's the one that does it, and we are saved by faith. So there are only two religions in the world. So we then see, of course, that Mithras is a religion like Zoroastrianism is a religion of law, a religion of works. It's up to you to do something. And, and, and you know, basically, that is what our sin uh, appeals to our sinful flesh, right? Being able to do it ourselves. Um, so the common source of all other religions besides Christianity is precisely what Peter says. Not commonly devised myths. All other religions have their source in human desire to feed what? Feed our pride. They're all based on the fact that I can pat myself on the back and say, job well done. You did it. Um, because then you don't have to live by faith. You can live by yourself. So why the claim that the story of Jesus was merely plagiarized from this or other pagan sources? There are many reasons. From anti-Christian bias to fascination with anything sensational and conspiratorial. Everyone loves a good conspiracy theory, wrote Dan Brown in his best-selling The Da Vinci Code. 
But behind it all, and from the time this charge was first asserted, lies the assumption that the story of Jesus could not be true. Explaining the story of Jesus as plagiarism of earlier myths commits the logical fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc. It's on the test. Since Y followed X, Y must have been caused by X, right? Okay. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. So basically it's saying since, uh, let's see, um, uh, what can we say here? Um, that, that since the sun rose, um, that ha the sun rose and um, that caused me to be late for church, right? It, that's just a very, that's actually a very bad one. But it, nonetheless, something happened and that caused why. This, you know, the sun rose late or the sun rose up and that's why I was late. Whatever. Um, since y followed x, x, y, x must have been caused, y must have been caused by x, okay? So really it's, you know, post hoc, you know, after, um, therefore, before happened. I think that that's pretty close to the Latin there. My Latin scholars aren't here this morning. Um, okay, uh, next paragraph. There really is no evidence that comes close to establishing any mystery religion as the source of the accounts of Jesus' life. In fact, you won't find such a claim in any serious historical scholarship anymore, as it has long been discredited. See chapter 4 of Lee Strobel's The Case for the Real Jesus on this. It only gets repeated in popular literature and other media that arbitrarily, for the sake of popularity and profit, exempts itself from the standards of professional historians. So where did the story of Jesus come from? It's important to understand that this is essentially a historical question. Our answer then should not be informed by constrain or, and constrained by the evidence. This does not mean evidence selected and presumptuously interpreted to fit a narrative determined by prior assumptions about what can and cannot be the case. What is the evidence? For starters, the New Testament insists, as in the passage from 2 Peter quoted above, that the testimony of the apostles was not based on some earlier myths. Instead, it's derived from their experience with the real historical man, Jesus of Nazareth. Luke tells us that he followed the example of the biblical authors by constructing his gospel on and according it around the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Paul insisted that Jesus' life and especially the events surrounding his death and resurrection did not happen in a corner. The facts were well known by both Christianity's friends and foes. In fact, Paul staked all of Christianity's credibility on one historical event, the resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. So let's go there. Let's look at that. I think we've, we've seen it a couple times, but let's just go there to remind um, to remind us what St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. And let's start in verse 12. First Corinthians verse 12, we'll just start where they have that paragraph begun there. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we have all people most to be pitied. But in fact, right, that, <laughs> that statement, right, but in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. St. Paul bases it on the resurrection of Christ. Any foe, back to the, our, our book, the middle of, or top of page 56, any foe, and there were many, could have easily discredited the, discredited the event by producing his corpse. By extension, this would have discredited the whole Christian faith. They certainly had every means, motive, and opportunity to do so. Additionally, the story of Jesus is told in a way that is radically different than any other text or other evidence for the mystery religions. The latter don't even pretend to be based on historical events. The Gospels are entirely different. They not only situate the life of Jesus in real time and real space. When Pontius Pilate was prefect of Judea, Caesar Augustus and Tiberius Caesar were Rome's emperors. Joseph Caiaphas was high priest of Jerusalem. They are also filled with all sorts of geographical and historical details. These correspond to what historians know from extra biblical sources and what archeologists discover in the dirt and among the artifacts of the Holy Land. See Paul Myers in the fullness of time for an account of the many of the details. Lastly, there is literally no positive evidence suggesting the story of Jesus was stolen. But there is also no way to explain why many of the eyewitnesses who spread the news about Jesus would go to their death for a story they knowingly created from pagan myths. All but one of the apostles was killed for telling the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who suffered, died, was buried, but rose from the dead. People often believe lies. Some even die fighting for causes that are built on them. They do not willingly die, however, for advancing what they know to be untrue. The same logic applies here. Myths don't make martyrs. It's hard to imagine all the apostles, except for John, enduring torture and death for what they knew was not true. In any case, there's no evidence that the story of Jesus was copied or stolen from the myths of the mystery religions. The parallels that exist are vague and arbitrarily interpreted to make them fit a detail in the life of Jesus. This is done not in the interest of scholarship or in the pursuit of understanding what really took place. Rather, it is done to prove the assumption that the story of Jesus cannot be true. A close look at the evidence with the intent of letting the evidence determine what is the case shows that the story of Jesus was derived from eyewitnesses. It was written by authors who not only asserted they were telling the truth, but wrote so that their testimony could be, is, and continues to be verified for its truthfulness. History, archaeology, and the integrity of the Gospels all bear witness to the fact that the accounts of the Gospels are not cleverly devised myths. They are primary source records of the life and teachings of Jesus. Okay, any, th any thoughts? Anything else on top of that?
Any questions? Who's that guy, Frazier, that wrote that book? Mm -hmm. What was he? Uh, he's probably, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. I haven't read it. I don't know. Okay, so, um, you know, we need not be ashamed and we need not be afraid when we hear people say things that we don't exactly know about, like when they talk about Mithras, right, Zoroastrianism, or these things where you're kind of like, well, I don't know about that. I've never heard. Tell me, you know, tell me about it. So it pays for us Christians to then go and look these things up and look at them and to read them and to know of them. Uh, you know, and yes, there are hundreds of thousands of mystery religions. And, you know, it is quite interesting that one of their doctrines or tenets or practices of their faith is to keep it a secret, right? It's a secret knowledge, you know, kind of makes you feel, kind of makes you feel special. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, this is not anything you need to be afraid of. But, you know, you notice where the author went and where he found his best, his best material, the scriptures themselves. We did not follow, we did not give to you cleverly devised myths. This was not something that, that was made up by man, right? No, what, what, is, the other, what is the other statement? Uh, no teaching came by the will of man, but solely by the will of God, um, that we have the Holy Spirit guiding and teaching us. And that's really a great thing, you know, to know that, that the truthfulness of Christianity doesn't depend on your ability to defend it. That is something we would like to be able to do. We would like to be able to defend Christianity um, um, and, and to be good students of it. And that's a laudable goal. It's a lifelong goal. It's something that should never cease nor stop. Um, but you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't be too disappointed or sad when someone brings up some ancient religion and says, hey, Winnie the Poohism, do you have you ever heard of that? You know, Winnie the Pooh, you know, was spoken of in the Middle East before Jesus was. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, I'll need to look into that, you know. Um, but to not be, because I even me as a pastor, I, I always I always feel bad when somebody has obviously researched something very, very deeply, and they, they'll get into a debate with me and I can't argue with them because their facts about what the subject that they've studied, they've spent years looking at it. And um, I know that feeling. It's not, it's not a good feeling. You want to be a good defender of Christianity. But remember that humbling feeling is a good thing. It reminds you that you aren't, you, you know, Christianity, the defense for Christianity is Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And that's what we stand on. Uh, we stand on Christ Jesus himself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what, you know, that's what, that's what happened between Jesus and Pilate, right? Pilate, hey, speak up. Why don't you say something? Defend yourself. And Jesus just kind of like, he says, well, I've preached. I've been public. You've heard everything I said. Um, Yeah, and I think that is a temptation, too, for us is to get into, you know, some of these debates. And, and we certainly can. Um, we just have to be willing, like we read in an earlier chapter of this book,
be ready to give an answer, a defense and love and, and, and kindness. And sometimes, sometimes the best thing is just to say, oh, yeah, thanks, appreciate it. Um, as, as Jesus when he faced Pilate too. And, and Jesus also teaches a bit too about, you know, turn the other cheek, you know, and, and sometimes in a debate, um, you know, that's what we have to do. We'll, we will be, right, what does Jesus warn his disciples? You'll be, you'll be set before kings and magistrates. You'll be put on trial, but don't be afraid for the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Um, so yeah, we'll be, we'll be put on the public stage uh, many a times and we'll be asked to give an answer and we'll, sometimes we'll, we just have to pray and trust and know that God is taking care of things. Yep, yep. Very good. Any other closing thoughts? Anything else? He was amazing. What did you, oh, he was okay. What did you think of this chapter? What's your opinion of it? It's good. Yeah, anything that surprised you? Anything you you never heard before? I'm sure. I'm sure all of you. Yeah, I was gonna say most of you I know have studied Mithras, and I know this is probably old hat Zoroastrianism. Yeah, you can go and watch old episodes of Zorro. You know, go see TV back when it was good and wholesome, right? When a guy rode around and sliced people with a sword. What's that? I've never heard of that book before. I mean, I've yeah. heard of yeah. you know everybody talking about oh we all pray to the same God and we all, you know, every religion has its similar, you know, I, I've heard that, mm-hmm. you know, all my life, but I didn't know there was a guy that actually wrote a book about it. Yeah, just kind of comparing and saying it. Okay. Have you ever heard of uh, Ekinkar? Uh, it sounds it's, familiar. It's, it's a current religion. Oh, okay. Okay. It was established in 1965. Oh, nice. And they, Newcomer. they believe it's the art of soul travel. Oh, soul travel. Everything has a soul. Okay. Can I travel to another place? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, My soul wants to travel to a place with a lot of sand and salt water. And, yeah. experience. Okay. If you remember L. Ron Hubbard said, yeah. you know, the quickest way to becoming a millionaire was... <laughs> Invent a religion. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that your son, Jesus Christ, Uh, was raised from the dead, that he gave his life on the cross, and he was the way, he is the truth, and we thank you that uh, he has accomplished all for us. We grant that you would strengthen us in our time of need, especially when uh, we are defending the faith, when we are called to give an answer for for what we believe. Give us the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, uh, to know that uh, you have accomplished all for us and will be with us in our time of need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.